funny. We did we did find out we're getting something like a neighborhood of twenty one hundred subscriptions to our yeah. uh, to our podcast. So I was just thinking, man, if, if all those people bought my novels, you guys would have to pay me. Anyway, <laughs> but we're talking about uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, going to see if we can try to finish that up here this morning. And we're talking about not just the stuff you're born with, the the natural abilities they have, or, or just the things that you've honed, but the idea that God supernaturally gives his people. What just if you can if you can remember what kinds of stuff have we been talking about from First Corinthians twelve and thirteen? Twelve as he's giving that body analogy, thirteen as he's talking about the love chapter. Do you remember any of the stuff that we've been talking about, spiritual gifts in particular in those couple of chapters? Anything to put in perspective? Well, that um, the reason that twelve and, and as you go to fourteen is there is because of thirteen. Yeah. Which is, and how is that different from the way most people tend to think of that? Well, because I think they uh, tend to think, and and I think even I at some, certainly at some point uh, thought that thirteen was just kind of this uh, parenthetical, just kind of a chapter where he just uh, you know just talks about love in the middle of the spiritual gifts, and and the focus was more on spiritual. I think people think more focus on more spiritual gifts rather than. <coughs> Yeah, it, 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 chapter 13 isn't a tangent, because that's the way we tend to think of it as, you know, spiritual gifts, love chapter, spiritual gifts, because that's 12 and 14. If it's not a tangent, why does Paul even, because we often say, well, why does he break into the love chapter? The other way of looking at it is like, wait, if, if 13 isn't a tangent, if that's the heart of everything he's talking about, the question is, why is he bringing up spiritual gifts at all? Not, why does he break into this tangent, but why is he even bringing up spiritual gifts? And you go, because they're not doing it in very loving ways. Because as we've been going through chapter 14, you can't hardly get through like two or three verses without him saying specifically, for the edification of the body, because you love. Do this for, to encourage other people. Do this to teach other people. I mean, it keeps coming back that he's constantly reminding them the whole point of spiritual gifts is koinonia. You know, is that fellowship angle, that fellowship context. So it, su- it suggests that the only reason we have this beautiful teaching on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians that really helps us to understand spiritual gifts is specifically because of chapter 13, because of the love. So if you look at those first couple of verses in chapter 14, um, it even starts with, so, okay, follow the way of love. And so let me talk about spiritual gifts again. Uh, and, and what is he saying in verses 1 through 5 in general? I mean, what's, he, what's he making a distinction between? Um, prophecy and uh, tongues. And, I mean, the distinction being? That one is, well, the prophecy is greater. Right, and we discussed this. I'm just saying better, greater. greater. It's going to affect more. It's going it's to accomplish more. Because why? Edifies has much more of an impact for. Exactly, it's hitting more people. It's, hitting, it's not exactly. So the functional difference between tongues and prophecy: one, if there's if there's tongues that are just speaking to God, then that's just you and God. If there's prophecy, it's affecting everybody, which suggests that's why it's the greater gift, and that, which again comes back to why we're talking about this in the first place. Um, yeah, so I was asking, why is prophecy better, and why is that, or uh, greater? No, you got me doing it. 
Um, because it fits in this overarching koinonia, fellowship context of talking about why these exist in the first place. So, let's actually start reading some verses. Somebody read me 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 9. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp cannot give distinct notes, how will any know, anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, Okay. Summarize Paul's argument here. What's he saying in your own words? He's saying that um, speaking in tongues, uh, unless it's unless somebody can interpret it, is just a noise to everybody else. Right. It's just for you. <clears throat> yeah, if I'm speaking Slovakian, I'm speaking Swahili, and you don't know Slovakian, you don't know Swahili, how does this edify you other than, wow, look at what he's talking. It doesn't help you. All it does is potentially make you think I rock, but it doesn't do anything with you. Is this a valid argument? Why, why not? originally read as one continuous letter, right? This is not broken up into verses and chapters. Just reminder of that. So compare and contrast what Paul said here. What did he say in verses 7 and 8? Read 7 and 8 again. Okay. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the pupil gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for that? He just said something in chapter 13, verse 1. What did he say in 13.1? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging sound. So, they just heard that like three minutes earlier in the letter. Compare contrast. Is he, is he saying the same thing? Is he saying something slightly different? What's he saying? Well, he doesn't include the love part, but the other part is the same. Yeah, the, the imagery, because he's like, I, you know, I, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, non-communication is always a problem, but if you're not even starting to communicate with loving mind first, then it just comes out. So. Now, is there any difference in the instruments that he's including in in chapter 13, 1, or chapter 14, 7, and 8? It's technically, he's making the same basic point, but he's flip-flopping something. Yeah, it's not a gong or something, it's a food and a heart. Yeah. And it's played by people in a more physical, tactile manner than this. And he's specifically emphasizing the flute, the harp, the, the, the bugle even, is saying something, right? Yeah. The, and the clanging gong and resounding... Between notes, yeah. yeah it's like, if, if, if I speak in a way that nobody gets, all it is is... Crash, slang, slang, slang. It doesn't sound like anything other than noise. What we want is the flute. We want the, 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 the bugle that's giving a specific call to retreat or to go forward. Or we're talking about this company. We're talking about a, 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 a harp that's playing a melody. 
he specifically said, he's, both times he's using musical analogies, and both times he's talking about the importance of knowing what's going on. But, but in chapter 13, he's just like, if you don't have love, all you are is noise. What we're looking for is melody. We're looking for something that means something, right? He's not saying symbols are evil. You know, he's just saying, I'm, what we're looking for is something that carries meaning with it. And so, so yes, he's using the same analogy, but he's technically flip-flopping it saying, well, we don't want that, what we do want is that, in terms of musical instruments. Which I think is interesting. So why did they need those nuances so badly there, in Corinth? What was going on in Corinth? Obviously they were not using the gifts appropriately. Right. And, and given some of the things that we saw in chapter 12, and given the entirety of why chapter 13 is there, and given the beginning of chapter 14, how were they abusing it? I mean, I don't necessarily need to know all the specific mechanical details. What's, how philosophically are they abusing the gifts? Yep. I'm better than you, and I'm greater than you. And I because look, I do this spectacular, splashy thing, and you only do that. You have the gift of helps, you silly person. So everybody goes, man, I don't want that one. I don't want hospitality. People are going to be over all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I have the gift of tongues. Splash. So, so he's like, yeah, you splash with a loud noise. What we're looking for is more of a surgical strike. What we're looking for is something that's going to mean something to the people around you. How can our church today, whether it's the Capital C Church in America or we're talking about our particular body, how might it be helpful for us to read these nuances, priorities, perspectives? What, how, how is that important to us to sit there and go, wait, am I... Am I sitting here dead silent? Am I looking for the loud, screamy splash, look at me, look at me, look at me, look, look at me, look at me, look at me? Or am I doing stuff where you go, no, this is actually ministering to somebody in a way that actually matters? How can we maybe, even if you go, well, I don't know about spiritual gifts, this isn't technically a class on spiritual gifts, it's the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is saying, I don't want you to be silent, and I don't want you to be slamming, clashing, look at me. I want you to be a harp that's playing a melody. I want you to be a, a bugle or a trumpet that tells people what God wants them to do. How do we live that out? Well, I mean, uh, one is certainly in terms of uh, praying uh, that the uh, uh, that the spirit that we the spirit would come upon us to to, to, uh, to use us and um, and that we be uh, used for the you know for the edifying of everyone and that we also have uh, that we step out when we realize that we that we've been gifted that we step out into that uh, yeah and that's an interesting two-pointer thing to sit there and go all right if if, if God is using you be used you know, make sure that you're stepping out and being used in what God is wanting to use you in. But that requires some reflection, self-reflection and prayerful reflection to say, how is God wanting me to step out? Because if I go, ooh, I like that, you go, well, maybe the church can use that, but is is that really what he's calling you to, or is that just you going, ting, ting, look at me, ting, ting? Do you limit yourself to only um, being used in that the body, you know, something that's needed, or I mean, physical needs to get to 
yes, God will, God can make a rock do their job or, sure. or whatever that he wants, but would he rather you? Well, that goes back to something where we started with all this, is the list of gifts, the way it's being described, it's not necessarily Surah has the gift of training monkeys, whereas Randy has the gift of finding water. You know, it's like, no, it's not like you have this one gift and you carry it with you and use it at your discretion. It's that the Spirit gifts people as he chooses, when he chooses for specific things. If for no other reason, we go back to, again, why is the Holy Spirit doing any of this? It's not so that Sarah can walk around going, I have this gift of monkey training. Yeah, I have this gift. Use a ridiculous analogy, you got to remember it. Um, but I have this gift that I carry with me. It's my gift. You go, then you fundamentally miss the point of what we're talking about here. Because the whole point is willingness to be used by the Holy Spirit to edify the body in whatever. So maybe, as we've talked before, maybe Nikki has never been used with a gift of healing before. Megan is hurt. They're on a ski slope. Megan hurt herself. Probably. Should Nikki lean down and lay hands on her and pray and say, Lord, heal her? Or should she go, well, I've just never been used as a gift of healing before, so that would be pointless. I'll see if I can just... I've got hospitality. I'll just pray that if someday you get feeling better, you can come hang with me. Well, I mean, I just, for me, I remember the time of the um, that Kelvin, I, I needed a babysitter uh, for, because I wanted to go to Olivia's birthday party, but Philip was sick, and I was, like, calling a couple people, but they couldn't babysit because a lot of them were going to be at Olivia's birthday party, and so I was like, Kelvin, just two hours! And he, he would have said, no, I'm a, I have the gift of healing. I do not have the gift of babysitting. Um, then, you know, I mean, that would not have edified the body. <laughs> okay, somebody read me verses 10 to 12. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Okay. Put this summation in this larger context. How would Paul, calling them functionally foreigners to one another, how would that how would that act as a sharp counterpoint to the body analogy in chapter 12? Because remember in the chapter 12, it's like you're all part of one body. You're all connected. You're all, you know, you're, 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 in fact, parts of you are even talking to parts of you. Even if it's just the eyeball going, I don't need you, toe, you know. But here he's like, but... The way you're doing it, you're functionally <laughs> foreigners to one another. How's that a counterpoint? Bodies, sometimes we're different from each other. Body parts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Foreigners aren't part of the body at all. They're completely different. You're literally alienated, right? You know, you're. You are not connected with one another. You speak, and the other person goes, I got nothing. Whereas you're supposed to be working in concert with one another, working in lockstep. I don't even think about walking. I just think about, I want to move forward, and I move my feet. Do you realize how many different parts of your body are coordinating perfectly, like some sort of Varishnikov ballet, just walking forward? You know, you you lose a little toe, and it affects your balance. You... You get an inner ear infection and it affects your balance. It's think about how complicated it is just 
if you've ever tried to set anything on two feet as opposed to three feet, like a stool, think about how complicated it is just to stand upright. And yet you do it without thinking because all these parts are working in concert. Paul's like, right, you guys are functionally alienating one another by what you're doing. So what does it say? They're alienating one another. Literally alienating, and yet they're still eager about getting and practicing the spiritual gifts that they're alienating each other with. It's like you are chopping each other apart from one another and yet still giddy to do it. What does it say about what's going on there in Corinth? Their basic perspective on how the Holy Spirit is working in them. It's getting green. Like, they're necrotic to one another. They're, they're toxic to one another because they're separating each other from the body. Mm -hmm. they're, they're killing each other with their toxicity and self-centeredness. And yet, giddy to do it. Yeah. Why? The individual is feeling good about themselves. Let's go back. I know it's gangrene, but it's such a pretty color. You know, or, 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 with this idea of going... I, I am necrotic. I am toxic. I am separating. And I'm not just separating myself from the body. I'm separating David from the body. I'm separating Eric from me. I'm separating all of us. And yet, listen to my cymbals clash. Can everybody hear me going cling, 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 cling? That's what I'm interested in. Which brings up a good point. If he ends chapter 12, 31, with, and begins chapter 14, 1, and, and here in chapter 14, 12, if he's saying this, not just that I want you all to do this in the way of love, which he does keep banging that drum, but he also says, I want you to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. I want you to desire to excel in this. I want you to eagerly desire the greater gifts. I want you to eagerly desire this. And he says he's doing this because he knows they have already eagerly desired spiritual gifts. I know that you guys are looking for these spiritual gifts. I know you guys are eager for this. So I want you to be eager for this. What's the point that he's making? Because it's not that they're, they're going, uh, I'm not all that interested. Three times he's saying, I want you to be eager. I want you to be eager. I want you to be eager. And yet, at the same time, he's like, oh, you guys are totally eager on this. What are you going to say, Eric? It's good that you're eager on this. I just want you to be eager to do it right away. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. You guys are so stoked about doing this. You're all over this. Man, I'm out there. I'm doing this. And he's like, yeah, I want you to be eager, but stop doing it the way you're doing it. I want you to be eager to, to get the greater gifts. I want you to be eager to excel at the greater gifts, which, again, does that mean you should be trying to get the, the greater gifts? Is that what he's saying? Does he ever say, I want you to make sure you go get the greater gifts? We ended the last time talking about this. No, because you can't go get yourself a gift. He's talking about excelling at the gifts that you're stepping out in. Emphasizing that. Doing that the right way. And in chapter 14, 14 here, he does give us some details as to how to do that the right way. So, what problems do you think Paul's admonishment here would help prevent in our church? If he's like, alright, there's, there, I want you to want these gifts, but I want you to want them the right way. I want you to, to be willing to step out in them, but I want you to be to be willing to step out in the right way. 
doing it with an orderly kind of mindset and doing it with a loving kind of mindset. I want you to be willing to, to not be scared, Timothy. I want you not to have timidity, but I want you to do this with the right heart, not just banging drums so that you say, look at me. How can, how can we apply that in our church today? Give me any kind of tangible. I never want this just to be philosophical. Well, I think we got we have to uh, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to work in us, and uh, be willing to uh, stretch ourselves in what He's asking us to be, because it may not be what we feel comfortable with. Absolutely. So that's the Timothy end of the spectrum. Yep. I want you to pray. I want you to fan into flame the embers that God has placed in you, and I want you to not be scared to do that. Okay? How do we balance that? What's the other side of the equation? That's Timothy. What about the Corinth side? Better not. Also, use these gifts to better ourselves. It's to better the country. It's to better the people, not ourselves. Make ourselves It's not personal. And again, both of those are require some personal reflection, right? Some prayer time on your knees saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do here? Not just in general, but I mean specifically today. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this situation? Lead me. How do you, what do you want me to do? And then over here, when you're stepping out of it, to go, help me to make sure this isn't just about me. The, 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 in both these things, it's the Holy Spirit that's actually doing the acting. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing the filling. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing the empowering. But in all ways, it's us getting down on our knees going, let me make sure I have the right heart. Neither timidity nor. Oh! I don't want to say that. Okay. Somebody read me verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Okay, so now you've got somebody stepping out, even in the splashy, cling, clingy, clingy gift, but you're still having to pray and self reflect, right? For what reason? For what reason? Because this is a context thing. For this reason, what is what he just gotten finished saying in verses ten through twelve? <laughs> to build up the church, right? Because he's made this whole argument of if all you do is go uh, Greek and nobody in the, in, in, in the audience, nobody else in the in the church speaks Greek, you don't edify anybody. Now, go back and read. Uh, verse 12, or chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, and then somebody else read 14.5. Remember, all context. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Okay, somebody got 14.5? I want you all to speak in tongues. Even more in prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So, how do we reconcile? Are you supposed to be interpreting your utterance? Is someone else supposed to be interpreting it? Don't speak in tongues unless somebody else is interpreting. Does everybody interpret? Well, no. Does everybody speak in tongues? No. Here it says you should pray and make sure you can interpret. Are you supposed to be interpreting it, or is somebody else supposed to be interpreting? Yes. Can you see where if you pull one verse out of context, but you're the one that's supposed to be interpreting. Well, somebody else is the one who's supposed to be interpreting. What does that suggest to you? 
uh, in general about how you should be perceiving this act of, I'm going to step out and do something. What, what, what are you having to do before you do it? What's verse 13? I mean, verse 13 is specifically saying, pray that you interpret. But in general, when you link all these verses, what are you supposed to be doing before you step out and go clingy, clingy, clash, clash? Pray. Pray. Make sure that it's for the edification of the body so that somebody can interpret what you're doing. So maybe you even get up and you go, I don't know if I'm going to do it or somebody else is, but I I discern somebody's going to interpret this. And so anytime I shouldn't just go, stuff. I should go, wait, pray. Is this appropriate? Is this what God is actually leading? I don't want to be timid. I don't want to be self-absorbed. I just I want to be obedient. And I want to be consciously, actively obedient. And even if we're not talking about tongues, do you see how you can cross-apply this to anything that we're doing in ministry? Anything that you're doing in life is to go, wait, I don't want to just crawl in a hole, and I don't want to just clang cymbals. I want to stop and go, is this obedient? Is this something that helps the body? Is this what God wants me to do? Is this the time to do it? Again, as we get into later on in chapter 14, he does a whole lot of, this can be this, and if this person does this, you can still do this in an orderly fashion. Even the most seemingly ecstatic sort of utterance. You still do this in an orderly fashion. Somebody read me verses 14 to 17. For if I pray in a tongue, my, my spirit I praise, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. 17. Yeah. Uh, if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Okay, so what kind of balance would, or balances is, 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 would you say Paul is trying to strike here? What parts of the, what parts of the individual is he referring to here? Spirit. Spirit and your mind. Any other part? What's actually speaking? My mouth. Yeah, my mouth, my tongue. So you go spirit, mind, body, right? The classic Greek way of looking at at how we're all put together. What is the distinction between spirit, mind, and body? I mean, body, you got that. You go, this is this stuff. The beauty that is Pastor Kevin. Um, what? Mind is your thoughts and thinking. Yep, your volition, your plans. Says yep, that's a good one. Understanding. And what's your spirit or soul? Oh, see, that's the part that gets sticky. Now, does that help you understand why people sit there? Again, why people go, God the Father. Yes, Father, I got that. God the Son. Yes, I see that appeared. Yes, got that here. God the Spirit. Yeah, whatever. So what is your spirit? What is your soul? If not just your thought processes and not just your flesh, what is your soul? What's your spirit? And again, there are some Greek distinctions that split even those two, but let's for the time being say soul or spirit being one thing. What, what's that? If not just your thought processes and not just your, your the flesh, what, what is your spirit? So wait, yourself is more than just your ability to cognate, to think through things? Yes. It's almost like the, the 
So it's the part of you that is alive and being I mean, truly the part that's alive. And yet, um, so like somebody, somebody is a vegetable. They have no mind working. And their body is only working because a heart-lung machine is making them work. Do they still have a soul? Are they still a person with a self? Yeah. Um, is this, what were you going to say? We had a little bit of a conversation. My wife being the hospice nurse says, I think I've sensed that people lose their soul before they lose their breath. And uh, in certain circumstances. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I, I think I think that you can I think that you can make a distinction between between my my heart is still pumping blood, my mind is still thinking, and there's still a living person here. Those are three different things. Is it possible that somebody could lose their that their, that their soul goes, I'm leaving, and the body is still pumping away. Is it possible that the body is still pumping away and the, the brain isn't working anymore, but the but the, the, the soul is? I don't want to go too far into this, but this idea of going, how about if we genuinely see that this is the way people can work, how about we focus on all these things? Instead of just, aha, spirit, 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 he goes, working with my spirit and my mind and my mouth. Let's make sure we're, we're never just running off one thing. My, my, my body's doing my body stuff, and that's it. That's all that is real. No, no, no. My, my mind is the most, most crucial thing. My mind thinking, 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 co cognition. This is what is the most important part. No, no, no. Stop thinking. Just led by the spirit. No brain in my... And there's whole, there are whole denominations focused on these sorts of things. No, I will not be led by the spirit. God gave me a brain for a reason. Therefore, spiritual gifts are something that can't be something given by God. Football just... And flip-flop that, people go, if I'm being led by the Spirit, if I try to use my mind in that, I'm doing something wrong. I remember in our campus fellowship, there were people that were uncomfortable with the idea of going to seminary and learning stuff, because then you're undermining the Spirit, because you're doing all this Bible study yourself. Dangerous. When you're reading this, you have to try to differentiate between the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in you, and your spirit, because those are two different things. They work together, but we're supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit in us. Yep. And our spirit is supposed to submit to the Holy Spirit. But I mean, every time you say spirit or the spirit, it's really easy to get mixed. Okay, it which is. spirit are you talking about? Well, you know, like, and, like, and Paul is usually pretty good about it, but there are some times where it is a little sticky to know which one he's talking about. Is that Paul being sloppy? Because Paul's clearly often sloppy. Why might he ever allow that to be ambiguous, whether you're talking about your spirit or the Holy Spirit? God's spirit. For me? Because he's a stinker, yes. But I mean, sometimes that he's just going, you need to think spiritually. You go, wait, my spirit or the Holy Spirit? If you're doing it right, yes. And those things. So, how does he conclude this iteration of his argument in, in, in verses 16 and 17? What's. What's the summation here? Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being broken. So what's the focus? What's the context here that he's getting at again? Yeah, this is koinonia, and it keeps hitting it over and over and 
over and over and over and over. Because again, I don't want you to get through 12, 13, and 14 without hearing this so many times that the next time you read this on your own, you go, how did I ever miss that this is constant throughout? You can't even get through almost any of the directives he has at all about this without hearing him say, body, body, rest of the body, 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 edifying everybody else. Everybody else needs to be part of this. Really, really, body, edifying, koinonia. And if you can't get through this without hearing that, how is it that the church, and I include myself, has forgotten that so consistently over the centuries? We have spiritual gift inventories. We focus, we have whole seminars where we focus on you getting your gift. We think that chapter 13 is an aside. How is it that when we read through this, we say it's so very clear that this is the whole point. And for centuries, we do exactly what Corinth did and let that part drop out as we focus on spiritual gifts, yay or nay, whether you're a cessationist or charismatic. How do we do that? Yeah. For the same reason that Corinth did, right? We like the spotlight. We like the splash. We like the red carpet and look, take a picture of me. Look, I'm, I'm wearing this. This is, we like that. And the rest of it is the complicated, messy bits. The religious bits or the splashy bits, we love that. The messy bits of, and how's that going to affect you? How's that going to affect Eric? How's this going to affect you? How is my action going to affect Christy? That's the messy bits. And we go, yeah. Can I just focus on this part? You go, not without bastardizing the script. When you get back to the text, when you get back to what we're doing, you can't divorce yourself from this part. If you do, then it's all about what you were hoping to get out of this. It's all about your worship experience. It's all about, which is all the stuff that Paul just said, then you're missing the point, right? Okay. Um, somebody read me verses 18 and 19. I love that you keep getting these. <laughs> this is so funny. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay. I don't know how that's in the notes, but just the way you just phrased that, the, the emphasis there. Again, we come back to, there are whole denominations that say, so everybody has to speak in tongues. You have to have spoken in tongues. Just the grammar of that suggests that there can be, I'd rather you do this. If, if it really was... Everybody has to speak in tongues and everything else is based on that. It's like, I want all of you to do this, but then I want you to go on to. But here he's like, no, no, I, I'd rather you do this. You know, there's a distinction between, oh, there. So again, how does he express this balance and perspective that he's been talking about, especially between tongues and other things? What's the balance here? If it's for the body, if it identifies the body. And he uses hyperbole here. How much, what's, uh, what's, the, what's the ratio here? Five, ten thousand, five thousand. Yeah. Okay, five, great. Ten thousand. Really, really, really. So what's he trying to get at? I think it's pretty, pretty clear. Really, I'd much rather you do this. So he doesn't want you to speak in tongues. No, he begins by saying, love it if you did. I want everybody to do that. That's great. So they're both about the same. Not even remotely. Not the same ballpark at all. I was going to say something about Little League versus Major League. But Cubs had what? 32 innings yesterday before they're going to be scoring. <laughs> How does he help answer a question from last week that we keep asking, what is Paul's basic perspective on speaking in the tongues of angels here? You know, this idea of speaking 
tongues that somebody else wouldn't necessarily understand. He's like, I'm fine if all of you do that. Why are you doing that? What does it accomplish? Is this something that's edifying to God because it's actually encouraging others? Does he again present this as a hierarchy? Actually, he does, and it's interesting. Why is he talking about Paul himself being the best at what the Corinthians were wanting to excel at? He's not even just saying, he's like, I rock at this. Why is he presented that way? Jew, and I did this as a Jew, and I did this is the best Jew, and he's like, and I know this crap. Yeah. Um, and so he's saying here too, like, yeah, I'm the best at it, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's like, if everybody is wanting to be the most cool, outstanding, amazing person, then technically, I'm better at this than all y'all put together. And I'm telling you, don't do it this way. Right? If the one who goes, I am the absolute model that you would look at for what you're wanting to look like, and I'm telling you, don't do it the way you're doing it. Shouldn't that be a good argument? I mean, shouldn't that be like the ultimate argument? I want to be just like Captain America. Okay, Captain America says, don't do this. I want to be exactly like Captain America except like that. It's like, no. If he's, a, if, he's a, if he's the model for you to emulate, and he says, and here's how you do that, then, then that's the way we should do that. Same argument that we saw in Philippians, same argument we've seen already here in 1 Corinthians, and here he's doing it most pointedly. When you get to verse 20, how does he conclude this in verse 20? Somebody finish that off in verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Okay, remember again, one continuous letter, right? So, how does it... How does this contrast and compare with what he had just said in 13.11? Somebody read me 13.11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put a child in And remember, it's in the context of saying, you know, we will eventually reach perfection. We will eventually reach this kind of stuff with, with the Lord, and then things will change. But until then... How does this compare with what he says here in verse 20? He's like, when I was a child, I thought like a child, or when I was an adult, when I became a man, I put that child of stuff away. What does he say here in verse 20? Yeah. When I was a child, I thought like a child, when I became an adult, like an adult, I put that stuff away. Which you guys haven't. Isn't that rather pointed when you put it in that context? Got to the end of chapter 13, they're like, yes, I agree, I agree. He's like, well then stop being childish. Stop doing that. Again, if you're, if you're reading chapter 13 and you go, yeah, I track with that. Then you get to chapter 14 you go, oh, that was about me. Oh, I see, that was about me. Was the love chapter a tangent? So, if the point in the middle of the letter, near the end of the love chapter is, I, I don't want to be immature about this. And then you get to, your, to this culmination in chapter 14, he's like, so stop doing this. How are they being childish in how they were looking at this? It was all about them. Yeah. It came out of a little baby. Fake me! It is. I mean, children, that's why God made babies cute. Because otherwise we'd want nothing to do with them, right? 
Uh, yes, they should be cute. Oh, give them bigger eyes in proportion to the head. Why? People like eyes. Trust me. They're gonna be. But yeah, it's like, how is this a slap in the face of the Corinthians then? What is he, what is he trying to slap them in the face about? Oh, that's a wonderful one. It, the whole point is that you're going, look at me. He's like, let's look at you. Mirror. I don't like your mirror. What else? Okay, so a child is, is saying, look at me, 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 I want, give me what I want. How else? And there's a lot of really good things about childs also. But what other children's is? What else? What else? What else negative about children's is might he be pointing to? Is, or maybe it's even the flip side of, so it's, it's me, me, me. What else about children? Yeah, they're, they're, you go to a grocery store with a child, you, you let them make the purchases, you'll end up with a lot of things you don't need. That Invariably marshmallows. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even child development. Um, I mean, they talk about it first, the children aren't aware of anybody else. Then they're aware of their parents. Then they're, they might or might not be aware that there are children next to them playing, but they don't play with the other children. They're just vaguely next to them. And then eventually they'll play... Like with them, but say, but I want. I'm just playing with you, so I get the truck you're playing with, and then eventually they can. But it's like, right? He's saying, guys, you're not even aware. You're not even thinking about anybody else. So there's the me, me, me factor. But the flip side of that is, and not even aware of who you're alienating. You do realize you've got somebody over there that says, I'm a foot, and you go, yes, but I'm the tongue, and I'm speaking truth, and I'm speaking this. Who needs a foot? You're you're chopping your foot off, and it's hurting the body. It's it's gangrenous and it's toxifying the bloodstream and that's going to affect you as a tongue and and you you're either not aware of this at all of how much you're alienating the very people you're trying to love you're distancing yourself from the very people that you're supposed to be connecting yourself to not only that but to the degree to which you are maybe aware of it there's at least some people from chapter 12 that are going but who really needs that foot really if the foot drops away but drops away. I remember serving a church one time that that I, I mentioned something to them. I said, does it bother you? How does it feel that there are so many people in this town that used to attend our church, and when we say the name of the church, they have a negative, sour association with it? How does that make you feel? And you guys know me. I'm not particularly touchy-feely, but I'm, I want to know how that makes you feel. And somebody finally answered this in the congregation meeting, and they said, that's on them. wanted to read this to them. It's like, wait, that there are so many people in this town that have left our church because people have hurt them here. And you go, well, they're just too sensitive. No, we're toxic, and we shouldn't be. So how can we stop being childish today? What are some things that we can do? Okay, that's a nice philosophical thing. Totally think that's awesome. Yes. Wheels on the ground. What can we do with that? Okay. What else? Given how he's describing childishness, how we've described it, what else can we do? Tangible stuff. Okay. Which are slightly nuanced different. I like that. Because it's being obedient, people say, yes, 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 and submit your will. 
because there's what I want out of the situation that may not be what God wants out of the situation. But I guarantee what God wants out of the situation is something that's going to edify Christy. And what God wants out of the situation with Christy is something that's going to edify Kelvin. If you go, no, what we did here kind of tore Kelvin down, you go, guarantee you didn't really listen to God. You may have even been thinking in your mind, well, I'm being obedient and I'm going and doing this. You go, some of these people were being obedient and speaking in tongues, but not the way they were doing it. Okay. We've got a uniquely easy opportunity to do this today on Mother's Day of being humble, edifying others, especially the moms and mom figures. Mm-hmm. Shine, not whining about lunch or having them do the dishes or whatever it is. Exactly. And, and that's good, and we should do that on Mom's Day. And by the way, Father's Day is coming up. Um, but <laughs> and Monday. Father's Day is the Monday. Um, but what we what we need to do though is to remind ourselves that every day we need to be looking at the people around us and going, "How do I edify you? How do I encourage you? How do I say, David, I love you guys are such hard workers in the AV booth. Thank you for doing that. You work hard. And most of the time, people don't think about you until you screw something up. So <laughs> let me inform you with what you're doing. Yeah. But how do we do that? Whereas it, 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 once somebody screws something up in the service, do we go and go, oh, i got to go talk to them now and be a grump about it. Maybe you do need to say, ooh, let's try to work on this, or how can I help you with this? But that works best in the context of all those other Sundays that you went, thank you so much for your ministry. This is awesome. This is great. You do an awesome job. Or do we, do we lose balance with that? Somebody read me verses 21 through 25. So what's Paul's argument here? How would you summarize this? Well, similar to like a lot of last week, I mean, when we talked about when you're speaking in tongues, and uh, and if there's, you know, you really can't, uh, you know, <laughs> you can really say and say I'm saying this. Yeah. And no one who's not interpreting may. Uh, yeah. Who can say no? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it also makes me think of Pentecost. Yeah. You know, I mean, unbelievers all walk by and went, you guys are drunk. Several of them went, you guys are drunk, and other people went, wait, that's Slovakian. You know, it was like, how are they speaking my native language? And they go over and listen and go, he's speaking like fluent Slovakian. Where did this guy learn fluent Slovakian? Um, So, in much the same way, he's like, oh, when... That, that tongues, that slamming symbols and all, when it's done right, this is something that reaches out to the to the world with things. That's great. That's not necessarily what you're trying to do here when you come together and worship. 
So who all is attending their worship services? Are there non-believers there? Yeah. Are there believers there? Yes. Are there non-believers there? Yes. So, I mean, we could go off and go, to what degree should a worship service be designed then for believers versus unbelievers? That's not my point of this section, though. No. But he is talking about doing things in a way that is sensitive to seekers. Does that mean we should have seeker-sensitive services? Which is an industry term. I'm not necessarily going to speak to or against that. But it does come back to the, the whole way. We should at least be thinking about this. He's not really talking about how do you design a service. But he is talking about, wait, what are you doing in a service? Are you... Are you doing things that are drawing people in and, and reaching those people while at the same time you're reaching people that are that are believers? Because that's the focal point of what you're trying to be doing is to honor God. So believers honoring God together. His argument is that if since your church is for believers, then you should be doing things to build up believers. Yep. And if you're not, then an unbeliever would be like, what are these people doing? Yep. What's, the, what's even the point? This doesn't even this doesn't affect me at all. This doesn't draw me in at all. And to do it to, to build up and edify the body will be an attraction in and of itself. Which means that now we're extending this koinonia fellowship thing as a potentiality even to unbelievers now. This whole thing is about okay, are you actually building up believers? Are you actually connecting to the body? Are you actually doing this? By the way, if you do this right, if you do this wrong, you push unbelievers away. If you do this right, you actually draw unbelievers in. Yay! So you're building up more quinonia to this pen, the potential members of the body. This whole section is about that sort of thing. Somebody read me 26 to 28. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a song, has a teaching, has a revelation, <coughs> has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in tongue, it should be by two, or at the most, three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. Uh, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Okay, first off, what do you, what do you infer is going on here in Corinth? They're all talking together. Yep. And let's link cross-apply verses. If everybody's just slamming their cymbals really loud and, and honking their horns. It's a cacophony. It is a cacophony. It is just a whole bunch of noise. It's not just Kelvin going, cling, cling. It's Kelvin going, cling, cling. And David playing the kazoo. And Michael, what do you want? Cowbell. More cowbell. That's right. So it's, it's, just this, it's just this loud, obnoxious cacophony. In verse 26, does Paul mean to say that God has given everyone there something to share? It's like all of you have something that God has given you to share, correct? <laughs> or, or is he saying that everyone in Corinth seems to think that they've got something to share? Whether they think they have something to share or, or whether they do have something to share, God is a God of order, yeah. uh, not a God of cacophony. And so he, you would, out of love, uh, like we were in 13, we would defer and wait and be patient, and, and we would uh, believe the best, and so we would all line up in a certain in a certain form. Uh, we would not talk over each other and be rude um, in that way. But it is interesting. 
with this phraseology there, is he saying every single person here, everybody has something that God has given them to share that day? Or is he saying, y'all seem to think you all have something to share? Well, it does, but it is especially... Well, what were you going to say? In, in the Greek, it's, it's ambiguous enough that you go, wait, is he saying everybody has something to share, but only two or three of you should actually do it? Or is he saying, y'all seem to think you all have something to share. How about you pray about it and think that only a couple of you really maybe do? Is there a reason why God, why God through Paul might be ambiguous in how he's phrasing this? Yeah, because I don't want to read this and say, well, Paul doesn't really mean that you don't all have something. And I don't want to read this like I've heard some preachers say, and go, clearly, God is saying, every time you come into a service, everybody has something they're supposed to share. Like, um, I'm not entirely certain that's what he's getting at. His point, go back to what Nikki was saying, but his point is, regardless of what you perceive or what you walk into thinking, only two or three of you should actually probably be stepping out. What are you going to say? In my version, at least, it doesn't say that you all have something to share. It says you all have something. You all yeah, have something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, what saying. That's true. That's true. And there's yeah. different kinds of needs. Yeah. That's true. So yeah. we, we have different people doing different things throughout the service. I mean, right now we have worship practice going on over in Sunday school. People are doing multiple kinds of ministry at the same time, but it's done in such a way it's gathering. They're not meant to be shared. Why would that last Koinonia line in verse 26 help correct the wrong thinking of let's all slam our symbols together at the same time? What does he say there in verse 26? What does he say? All this is done for edification. All this is done to strengthen the church. That's the whole point of all this. Again, I can't get through any admonishment that he has in chapter 14 without him going, because why are you doing this? What's going on with that? What does all this coin of meaning suggest about why the Holy Spirit is giving any of these gifts in the first place? If I can't get through any of the admonishments about Holy Spirit's gifts without hearing for the edification, for the edification of the body, for the strengthening of the body, to make sure you think about other people, make sure you're engaging with other people, make sure you stop and think, make sure you pray, make sure you step out and do what you're supposed to do, but do it in prayer so that you actually don't step on or alienate other members of the body. Why is the Holy Spirit doing any of this? Why? I mean, what does it tell us about the character of the Holy Spirit? Because remember, this is a course about the Holy Spirit. How does this work procedurally? How do you know if anyone else is going to interpret before you speak? You actually have to, you actually have to pray. You actually have to, to listen, right? You actually have to discern this. And what does all that suggest about what your relationship should be, not only with the rest of the body, but also with the Holy Spirit, long before you open your mouth? There's a gazillion other verses. But you can look at verse 31. You can look at verses 39 and 40. What does all this suggest about what... This isn't just a, and here's your gift, and here's your gift, and here's your gift. What does this suggest about how we're supposed to be relating to the body, and how we're supposed to be relating to the Holy Spirit before any stepping out in any gift? Well, it's kind of like the Holy Spirit is the conductor, and we are members of the people. We're waiting for his cue. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. Thank you. 
needs to have all of those other things planned. You can trust and I've, I've preached on this before, you guys have heard it, but I know Megan has heard this from me, but also in youth group when I've talked about this before, um, about hearing God's voice. It's like, well, how, how do I discern God's voice? Get, get to know him. I mean, spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, get to know him on a regular basis so that, so that when you hear a still small voice, you know, wait, is that just me? Is that a demonic presence? Is that God? I, I want to know. And if I just sit there and go, I never crack open my Bible. I never really pray. I have no relationship with God. And now suddenly I have to make a major decision based on whether or not I recognize his voice. It's like, well, that's that's not going to be easy. Uh, but you spend time. You engage. You discipline yourself. You get to know God. You have to have a relationship with God, and you have to have a relationship with the body. So how do you apply that concept today? Funky little teaching moment. We've already talked about this. Somebody read me verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Which is an interesting idea. Because we know that Jeremiah could control it, right? He could sit there and go, I don't want to speak, right? How'd that work out for him? Yeah, he's like, okay. So if, whether you're a prophet like Jeremiah or you're somebody standing in Corinth or whatever, can you control the prophecy or not? Well, yeah. Jeremiah could. Balaam tried to. Paul seems to think that it's still your tongue, it's still your brain working with this. How do even secular people break this down? I got a nice little graphic here from a secular psychology website. Um, so you got mind, spirit, body together. At the core of it is yourself, right? How all these things work together. How does a prophet work? How is that slightly different? Same basic concept, but slightly different. Spirit. Yeah, you got the, I didn't have room for Holy Spirit, but yeah, but God's spirit is working with your spirit, is engaging with your spirit, and so whether you want to look at Jeremiah, you want to look at Corinthians, you want to look at Second Timothy, this idea of there's what's going on in your heart, there's there's what's going on in your spirit that your spirit should be engaged in and submersed in the Holy Spirit, and He is. Interacting with your mind, we have people writing in the New Testament much the same things, right? I mean, like, Paul in, in, in Romans and the writer of Hebrews both make very, very similar arguments in very similar structures with totally different vocabulary, with different vibes with things. And you go, right, because God's engaging the minds of those people who are writing these. It's not just his Holy Spirit dictating. John writes different than Paul, who writes Paul's argument in Romans. Classic, awesome argument. Solomon's argument in Ecclesiastes. Amazing argument. Fundamentally different structure of argument, right? Because they're using the mind and the body to actually move. Um, how does God work? I mean, when you look at verses where we're told that, um, that Jesus is God-made flesh, that the Spirit searches the mind of God, and, and, and is our liaison, engaging with God, and, and God the Father, God's mind, God's volition, God's direction. You can make the argument of how this stuff works. How should the church work, the household of God? That we should, we should be God's incarnation. The, the Son went ahead of us. He is the first, uh, uh, the firstborn, the, the first... Uh, pioneer of, of eternal life. 
But we are God's hands and feet here in this place, led and filled with his Holy Spirit to find God the Father's mind and live that out. So in all these different things, and you can look up all these verses later, but all these different things, the idea being, let's engage all the different parts and make sure that we are actually discerning what the Spirit is leading us to do. And if we've, as we've said, the Spirit is, is the one giving life and breath and power and strength to us, dynamism in us. It's like, well, we have mind, we have our minds, but shouldn't our minds be constantly transformed more and more into the way the Father is thinking? We have hands and feet and mouths. Shouldn't we more and more be trying to emulate what Christ did with his hands and feet and mouth? We have a spirit. Shouldn't our spirit be more and more in line with what God's spirit is? An amazing number of evangelicals say, yes, I want to make sure I understand doctrine. An amazing number of mainline people go, Dr. Schmacher, and I want to make sure that I'm doing relief sales. An amazing number of charismatics go, ah, mind is sticky and this is fun, but I want to make sure I'm filled with the Spirit. And Paul's like, how about you do all these things? Your tongue express the thoughts of God because the Spirit is leading you. But your mind dictating the best way of doing this in a way that's orderly and honors the God that you're trying to be his household of. Because aren't we the household of God filled with his spirit? Just like a human person is, just like just like God himself, the, the church is an entity, an organism. So how does that make you think about how we should be consciously living out relationship with the spirit? Especially since the, 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 the whole point of this class is predicated on an amazing number of us have never really thought, not really, about who the Holy Spirit is, how he thinks, what he's done throughout scripture, what he's actually doing in us, the Ruach of God rushing through us. If this is true, how should that affect the way we think on a daily basis? How so? I agree. You're rapping. Okay. And when we hear something, what should we do? And making sure that we do understand truth. Not just, as spirit leads, I'll do stuff. You go, and thinking about it. God gave you a brain. And God gave you his thoughts on, on things. Sure, like the Bereans do. Or even Paul saying here, yeah, if all you do is go, spirit, 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 clang, 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 clang. Okay, I'm going to go just all, totally tangible. You go, then you're really nice people. Okay, I want to make sure that I understand God and do nothing with it. You go, uh, you're fine. Okay. What I want you to do is to do all these things. Yeah. I was just going to say, sometimes I've, I've had the opposite problem in the past where I felt like I knew the spirit wanted me to do something that didn't make sense to my mind. And so I chose not to. Yep. But I, knew, <laughs> I later found out, oh, I, I should have obeyed. But sometimes because it doesn't make sense to my mind, I don't obey. Yep. And that's and that, too. And that was my, that was, that was especially my problem in college, is I, I overthought things and I was like, that just doesn't make sense. And God eventually had to like break bridges and things to get my attention. So, yes, I, I think we, we, we can easily go on autopilot on any of these different directions. 
And what we want to do is be holistic as a human being. We want to be holistic as a church. We want to actually be in, in connection. We love preaching about the, the Son. We love preaching about Jesus, and rightly so. We, we, we enjoy glorifying God and, and preaching on that. We struggle as a church with having a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I'm encouraging us in your prayer life, in daily prayer life, crack open the Word of God. Look at the example of Jesus Christ and be in relationship with the Holy Spirit because he's the one that empowers you, directs you, connects you to God's mind, makes the Holy Spirit come alive in you, breathes life into you, and breathes eternal life into you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your spirit that fills us and searches your mind and searches our thoughts and brings our thoughts to you. Thank you for that loving, personal conduit that he cares and is walking with us like a like a comforter, like a paraclete, like a like somebody that, that walks alongside and says, I got this. Lord, thank you. And I pray, help us to genuinely seek you out in all of your facets and engage all of our facets to love you with all of our strength and all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and every part of us. We pray, Lord, Fill us with your Holy Spirit and work your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.